Hello and welcome along to the Northern Agenda podcast, the show that looks at politics stories in the north of England from a northern perspective. I'm Rob Parsons, a journalist based in Leeds. I follow the ups and downs of politics from our big cities to our rural shires and everywhere in between, and I write it all up for a daily email newsletter called The Northern Agenda. Now, unless something very unforeseen happens, like maybe the report we've all been waiting for on alleged corruption at the Teeswork Project is published, this will be the last Northern Agenda podcast of what has been a pretty busy 2023. Coming up later in the episode, I've got a fascinating interview that's worth sticking around for with two of the key figures at a place called SciTech Darsbury, a pioneering science and innovation campus near Warrington, where researchers are looking into how to make powerful supercomputers more than 100 million times faster than the ones we have today. But should we be excited or worried about the rise of sectors like quantum computing and artificial intelligence in the North? First, though, I thought we could sign off for the year by checking in with two of Reach's journalists covering politics in Manchester and the wider Northwest, where there has been absolutely loads to discuss of late. It's great to welcome Joseph Timmon, the Manchester Evening News' political writer, and Ethan Davies, city centre reporter for the MEN. Listeners might recall a few weeks ago, we chatted at Tory party conference in Manchester, but there's been plenty more happening since then and we're going to have a little talk about what's been going on in the last couple of weeks and also our memorable experiences in politics from 2023. So uh, Ethan and Joe, how are you doing? Yeah, all good. Excellently. Ethan, you have hot-footed it in to uh, record this podcast from a press conference this morning that Andy Burnham and uh, the leader of Bowie Council held um, and it's all about clean air uh, and it's a sort of continuation, isn't it, of the long-running saga of how does Greater Manchester clean up its polluted air and will motorists pay to help them do it? So can you just explain what, what's been happening today? So today, um, the press conference was held at the Greater Manchester Combined Authority's offices. Um, obviously, Andy Burnham is the mayor of Greater Manchester. Um, he heads up that organisation. The lead for clean air at the GMCA is a man called Eamon O'Brien, who is also the leader of Berry Council. So they've called this joint press conference at nine o'clock this morning to unveil their new plan for tackling clean air in Greater Manchester. So to take it a step back, you might remember about 18 months ago in February of last year, there was a big hoo-ha in Greater Manchester over the... Um, introduction of a clean air zone which would charge some drivers of largely commercial vehicles that weren't um, compliant with certain emission standards a daily fee to drive anywhere within Greater Manchester except the motorways. So it doesn't matter if you were working from outside of the area, if you're doing a job um, on some scaffolding, for example, in one of the very furthest reaches of Wigan, uh, because that is within Greater Manchester, you'd have been charged £7.50 to drive into the city. Same thing if you were commuting, if you're driving into the city centre, you'd be charged £7.50 if your vehicle wasn't compliant. And not many people took notice of this, it has to be said, until the end of 2021 when they started putting the signs up to say, we're going to start charging people from May 2022. And then very quickly, I think it's fair to say, this opposition snowballed against Burnham in particular. So he does a weekly phone-in show on Radio Manchester with the BBC. By January of 2022, it was absolutely packed to the rafters on occasion with people queuing up to basically have a go at him for the plan to charge people. 
it was also a feature of he does these question time events and uh, they rotate around the boroughs of Greater Manchester. So it was being mentioned there as well. And eventually in February, they completely pulled the plug on it. Um, it was officially paused um, and under review, which meant that all of our the thousands of signs that we've got that say clean air zone for Greater Manchester now have under review stickers slapped on them. But also, crucially, the cameras that were going to monitor and fine people for not paying um, have been left up. And they were left up initially to uh, collect data, in effect, on what a new scheme could look like. That's uh, February 22. In the summer of last year, the GMCA got its heads together and then went to the government and said, we would prefer an investment-led approach. We'll get on to what investment-led approach means in a second. And it is a little bit complicated, but we prefer an investment-led approach. The government, apparently, according to Eamon O'Brien at the press conference this morning, didn't actually say anything to them until January of this year. And then the government more or less said, well, we can explore this idea, but what we'd like you to do is compare your proposal against a model of a essentially a city centre congestion charge where motorists would be charged for driving into the centre of Manchester, which confusingly, in one of the idiosyncrasies of Greater Manchester, includes Manchester and a little bit of Salford as well. So it wouldn't be a borough thing. It would be based on a very um, strict geographical area. And that work was underway. And then Eamon O'Brien said that the government changed its policy on retrofitting buses, which meant it got delayed until now. But the new investment-led approach, as it's called, effectively is to not charge anyone for driving. And what the money will be used for, which is £86 million in total and is already committed from the government, they've said, um, £50 about of it about will be used to upgrade the bus fleet and they want that to be zero emissions by 2032. Although Andy Burnham has said that he wants that to um, happen sooner. £30 million of that will be, to, will be set up as a um, fund for taxi drivers to upgrade their own vehicles um, not specifically to zero emissions electric cars, but to cleaner vehicles is the phrase they've used. And then finally, the five million left over will be used for roads improvements to improve traffic flows um, in the city centre and that part of Salford, which also feeds into the urban core, as it's called. So all that means is, theoretically, according to their own modelling, the GMCA say they can clean the air quicker than a model where you would have a congestion charge in the middle of Manchester by doing it this way. And they say the only reason this is possible is because they've set up the B network, which is the new transport integrated system uh, where trams, buses and cycle hire is all going to be integrated into one ticketed system and it should work really freely. But although the trams and the bikes are involved um, at the moment, only a third of the buses are so far and that won't be done until January 2025, which is why... They're saying that for nitrogen dioxide, if they are right with their modelling, they should be able to essentially bring that below the legal limit by 2025. But they think it would still be a problem in 2026 if they went with the city centre congestion charge zone. So that is what was announced. And it was a little bit complicated, but that is more or less what the new plan is. The only problem is, is that it hasn't got approval from the government and it needs the government to rubber stamp it and say, yes, we'll go with that option. And that will be sent down to London next week, um, should it be approved by an internal committee of the GMCA, which we expect it will be. The ball will be very much in the government's court. And I, I, was, I was, saw a Commons debate 
last week, I think, where James Daly, who is a Tory MP in Bowie, uh, tried to make some political hay out of this and was talking about how Andy Burnham's pollution charge would have had a terrible impact on motorists. So it's clear that it's like quite a politically sensitive topic. And I think particularly so after the elections this year, where the uh, furore over the uh, the ULES charge in Greater London meant that Labour managed to somehow lose the uh, Uxbridge by-election that they looked set to win because the Labour mayor, Sadiq Khan, is bringing bringing this in. It's one that is going to run and run, isn't it, I think, like the, uh, the, the, the impact of it. Because there are clean air zones in other parts of the north, like uh, Bradford, I think, Sheffield, Newcastle have all got charging zones that relate specifically to the city centre. And the original Greater Manchester vision was to have a charging zone that would have covered a much, much bigger area. But now they've gone completely the opposite way and they said we're not going to charge charge at all. So I guess it just shows how sort of politically sensitive it is. Yeah, you're right. I mean, the original plan, the charging zone was 494 square miles, which is absolutely enormous. And the what they, I think it's probably worth drawing a parallel to here is what they've gone from is that model of charge some people for all of the area to something like what York did in terms of upgrading the bus fleet and changing key routes so that York York's clean air problem wasn't nearly as bad as Greater Manchester has to be said but in two or three key sites they're able to reroute buses away from that and then upgrade the fleet as well so that overall the fleet was cleaner and it wasn't as concentrated in a couple of areas so that seems to be the direction of travel in terms of the press conference this morning, it definitely wasn't triumphalist. It was there was no suggestion this was anywhere near done. Um, it concluded with Andy Burnham, who I think you know those in the media who have covered his sort of press conferences for a little while will recognise as a bit of a trait of his, where he basically use, usually makes the end of it a pitch to government, um, and he did exactly the same thing. He was like, "Please don't delay. Um, let's get this signed off this year so we can start work on it next year." So we've only got two years, and so on and so forth. But whether or not that happens, the issue hasn't gone away. Like, it doesn't matter how this gets solved. The dirty air is here now. Um, there are the rates of asthma in Greater Manchester are really high, um, which is something recognised by Owen O'Brien. So, whatever it ends up being, this clean air zone, it will have to be done relatively soon uh, because the last one got delayed by another two years. So, initially, the government told the GMCA to sort out the air by 2024. They were given two years of extension to show the full effect of the B network, uh, Andy Burnham said this morning. But with the way the air quality is going at the moment, it seems unlikely they'll be granted another extension. So whatever it is, has to work pretty quickly. Yeah, that is an interesting issue to be resolved, certainly. Now, let's change tack quite dramatically and talk about what's been quite a big few days for cultural types uh, in Manchester. It's been a a sort of a trio of very welcome announcements uh, for different types of culture in uh, Manchester, and I know Joe, you've been writing about uh, at least one or two of those. So, what just tell us about Chanel, the English National Opera, and the Michelin Awards, which are coming to coming to Manchester. So, I've not written about the Michelin Awards, but with the, the of the other two, I think Chanel is the most sort of exciting in the sense that. I mean, the fact that it was so sort of shrouded in secrecy, we knew that Chanel would be hosting their um, Metier d'Art, um, hopefully I've pronounced that right, um, <laughs> show uh, in Manchester. I think they announced it in the summer. They said it'll be in December. They didn't say where. 
I think people were imagining it would be in some kind of venue, like perhaps like Aviva Studios, the Factory International venue that opened earlier this year. You know, something that might fit the image of a big fashion brand staging a big catwalk show. But it was in the middle of the Northern Quarter, shut down a couple, you know, bars for a couple of days and just erected this like huge um, canopy and had all these celebs coming in and wouldn't tell us anything about it until like a couple of days before. So it was very exciting to cover. I think the significance of it, obviously Manchester has a really rich heritage in sort of textiles trade and they chose the Northern Quarter for its um, heritage of sort of mills and where a lot of that work would have gone. And, and that's the purpose of the show, as I understand it, to sort of give a nod to the, the craftspeople behind, you know, the, this glamorous um, luxury fashion brand um, but it, it was it was very exciting to have that sort of in the heart of the city centre um, and I think with all of those examples w- with Chanel in particular I, I'm going to use the cliche that we hear our local leaders say a lot it's a vote of confidence um, in, in Manchester in a way that seems quite sort of you know a, a private company just saying yeah we're going to go there the English National Opera is a bit different because it's based on sort of public money and an agreement as to where the English National Opera will have to be based in order to get that public money so that's more engineered that's more sort of leveling up and the public sector trying to sort of divert things towards the north it was a bit confusing that announcement because so they've, they've said Greater Manchester will be the main home of the English National Opera by 2029 it's not going to have its own venue in Greater Manchester, it's still going to have its London home of the London Coliseum. And it, its ambition is to continue having as as substantial an annual season at the London Coliseum. Um, and it comes after sort of a row with Arts uh, Council in England, um, I think it was last year, in which they were basically threatened with funding cuts unless they relocate to Greater Manchester. And, and their response was, well, we can't operate at all with this level of funding cuts. So they found sort of a middle ground, which seems to be the best of both worlds, but they're still in London calling Greater Manchester their, their main home. I think the ambition is to have sort of all the cultural infrastructure around it like rehearsal studios and and sort of yeah having um more eno staff based in greater manchester and using existing venues but putting on their own productions here so that's all very exciting but they're kind of in a way they're two very different things and i guess the michelin announcement that um that their their award will be hosted in in uh, manchester um, obviously, that's that's fueled a lot of speculation that there'll be more restaurants in Manchester that will uh, win a Michelin star. I don't know if we can necessarily conclude that from the fact that the award's being hosted here. But I think that yeah, the Michelin decision and the Chanel decision kind of fit in quite closely together because it's sort of the private sector saying. And, and they said, I read a story that one of my colleagues wrote about Michelin that they described Manchester is a place that's evolving quickly and it really feels like that. With, with the English National Opera, it's, it's not happening very quickly. It won't be till 2029. It's not really clear what will happen. Yeah, it's, it's, it is all very exciting. Yeah, absolutely. That, that brings us beyond quite nicely, uh, Ethan, to a piece, an interview that you did with Bev Craig, the leader of the City Council. And you asked her, uh, I think, is Manchester on the brink of a, uh, a new golden age? What, what did she say in, in response? She said the conditions are there for it, which is about as close as I think as a... Bev Craig, who's quite a level-headed politician, it has to be said, is probably as close to her saying yes as we're going to get. Um, and we, we actually we, we did this interview in sort of mid-November. It was, it was the only time on uh, her calendar. And a week later, she then launched the um, Manchester 
economic plan for the next 10 years, which Joe was out of the launch of. And then about a week after that, it was Chanel fever in Manchester. So it sort of has all come in at the same time, along with the E&O and um, the Michelin Awards. But essentially what Bev was saying is that there has been a sustained level of investment in Manchester. If you take a massive step back since about the late 80s, so sort of 1988 ish is when they start to really seriously talk about getting a Metrolink in or a mass transit system. Um, and then in 1992, the trams do open. In the 90s, before 96, the city was sort of marked by these continually evolving but ultimately failing uh, ambitions of the Olympics. In 1996, um, the IRA bomb goes off, so that means a lot of the city centre needs regeneration very quickly. 2002, Manchester hosts the Commonwealth Games, and that is a sort of a bit of a turning point, um, it has to be said, in terms of it being... I, I've read a, a, a few stories on this in the past, and um, one of the quotes, I can't remember said it, basically after one of the um, Olympic bid losses, it made everyone in the room responsible for Manchester's bid realise that they were no longer competing with Sheffield. Now, all due respect to Sheffield, they're actually now competing with Sydney and Melbourne and Rio de Janeiro to try and get people to come and visit and make a life here. And that attitude has sort of grown ever since the Commonwealth Games went well here. Then if you sort of look late 2000s, um, in terms of culture, you've got um, Manchester City's, um, the investment in Manchester City making the city have two very strong football teams, and that's obviously continued. And then if you look over the last 10 to 15 years, um, since 2008 financial crisis there's been a sustained level of investment in housing in the city centre and this is the key point is a week later after our interview she told uh, joe and uh, bev said that um the level of investment expected in manchester is expected to continue for between 10 and 15 years now we don't know if that means specifically in new housing in the city centre um including new skyscrapers because in the, within the last month we've had a 76-story skyscraper proposed in Manchester as well but what we do know is that the new strategy for economic growth is Joe may correct me here but it's push out and flow which sounds close-ish to trickle down in my mind but apparently what it means is the city centre attracts a lot of high-paying jobs so there's a lot of tech here We've got Amazon here. We have um, the co-op head office in city centre. BT is, um, I think it's technically in Salford, but it's just over the old well, but all of those jobs are high paying. Um, there's also things like Aviva Studios, which are going to generate high pay, paying jobs soon. But the wealth that they generate can be shared amongst the rest of Manchester um, in that sort of a sense, which is only when it is steered by the council. It's not just we've built this new office block and people who, and somehow through various processes of, well, of the money coming down here and coming down here, people in somewhere like Newton Heath will all of a sudden become wealthy. That's not what they're saying. What they are saying is we can, to use one of Joe's words, engineer this so that everyone can benefit at the same time. And that's when she, what she means when she says the conditions are right for a second golden age. Joe, that brings me on to my next question, which is given everything that Ethan has just spelled out so so nicely there and I mean I'm just looking at it as someone I I come to Manchester quite a lot but I live in Leeds and I cover the whole of the north and it, it I, I I don't know whether it's the Chanel thing or the English National Opera thing or just a gradual sort of uh, realization that in some people's eyes Manchester is the sort of London of the north in both a good and bad, bad sense in the sense that it sucks in a lot of the 
attention and uh, private investment. And, you know, it is the main place in the north where a cultural institution like Chanel or the the opera would come. It's arguable whether they would have considered anywhere else in Northern England to uh, to do what they've to do what they've done. Um, but at the same time, uh, there was a study out this week which showed that uh, you are more likely to die from cancer before the age of eighty. You're twice as likely for that to happen in Manchester than you are in the affluent parts of central London. So Manchester has got this amazing cultural cachet and all the private investment coming into it, but yet it is still a very, there's still large pockets of uh, poverty uh, and it's a very divided city in a lot of ways. So in that respect, there's quite a lot of parallels with London, aren't they? I mean, is is, is that something that people in the city that you speak to are kind of conscious of? Yeah, I think there'll be a lot of people who wouldn't have even paid any attention to the English National Opera um, announcement. And I think there'll be people who, I think the Chanel one is a bit harder to avoid because it was right in the centre, but there will be people who never come to the city centre that live, you know, not that like within sort of a couple of miles that wouldn't have paid any attention to it either. I think I had a really interesting conversation, I think it was yesterday with an academic who um, sort of expert in creative and cultural industries and we were talking about the English National Opera decision and that was some of the response that you saw there were definitely some more snobby response uh, responses online uh, you know ridiculing the idea that anyone in the north would be interested in opera um but there will that it's most people won't be most people as probably true of London as well most people won't be interested but one of the things that this this academic I was speaking to was saying is that if it goes well there's still sort of a sense of civic pride that comes with it, that it becomes our sort of our thing, whether it's Aviva Studios that achieves that or the English National Opera, or if it's just sort of something fun about loads of celebs going down Thomas Street in the Northern Quarter and and the, the pride that comes with that about sort of showing off this this strip of bars and, and other uh, delightful shops um, to, to you know, celebrities from across the world. So there's that sense of civic pride. But yeah, sorry, part of the reaction was, well, Manchester just gets everything. If it's in the north, it's going to be Manchester. And there are definitely like benefits to having sort of a hub like that. Um, There is obviously the danger that you're repeating issues that you have in London. But the difference between London and Manchester is transport. This is another thing that came up in that conversation, whether this goes well or not, and whether this is something that benefits the North or just benefits the places in which English, the ven, you know, the places nearby the venues that the English National Opera puts on their productions. It, it comes down to whether, you know, someone can get a train from Leeds to one of the productions and know that they'll be able to get the train back. So I think, yeah, there, there are definitely parallels in terms of Manchester becoming a hub for this sort of cultural stuff, for this investment, um, you know, new headquarters uh, for a government department was announced in Salford yesterday. So it's 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 happening in all sort of spheres, um, whether or not it goes well and it benefits the whole of the North in the way that London being a big hub works uh, will, will depend on how well connected people feel to it and and that will ultimately come down to how physically connected they are as well, I think. So I think transport is a big part of whether this kind of stuff will be a success. Yeah, it always comes back to transport, doesn't it, in any conversation about the North. Um, 
why don't we, uh, rather than dwelling on what's been happening the last couple of weeks, just cast our minds back a little bit further uh, about some of the more memorable things that have happened in 2023. I guess you could say, from a national point of view, we've had the same prime minister the entire year, unless something goes uh, radically wrong in the next uh, in the next week, which is obviously a big contrast to uh, 2022. But there has still been a lot of stuff happening, and I was just thinking about my sort of memorable moments from covering politics and similar stuff in the Northern Agenda. There was a big the reaction when the, the Sycamore Gap tree was felled in Northumberland and the sort of conversation that engendered about, uh, you know, our nature and our, our, our role with it. Uh, the amazing success of Eurovision Song Contest in Liverpool, uh, the by-election in Selby in North Yorkshire that came about because the Tory MP there flounced out of the job after not getting uh, a peerage. Uh, and the um, internal rows within Labour uh, has been a big feature of politics this year, specifically in relation to their election candidates, with uh, those from the left being sidelined as Keir Starmer tries to choose what he deems to be suitable candidates for the next election. Obviously, the best best example being Jamie Driscoll in the north north of Tyne, ruled out of being Labour's candidate for North East Mayor. But I'm just uh, interested, maybe relatively briefly, because we've been talking quite a long time, for you guys, what your memorable moments from 2023 uh, were. Joe, what, what's yours? Um, well, the, the, the big thing, I think, for me was HS2 being cancelled, or at least the Manchester LA being cancelled in Manchester. Um, it was obviously announced during the Conservative Party conference in an old uh, railway station. Um, and that was, you know, it was a crazy few days because there'd been so much, well, a few weeks, really, because there was so much speculation that this announcement would be made. Um, but we've talked about that enough, I think, on, on, on this podcast, or at least I have when I've been on it. So one of the things that um, that is quite similar that happened a few months earlier, um, but also really consequential in terms of, sort of transport in the north was a relatively similar thing happened with a rail minister coming up to Manchester to announce some money. Um, for new sidings and um, investment in platforms in some of the city centre stations. And what was sort of buried within the press release that they put out ahead of that visit was that they'd been can- they'd cancelled this long-standing plan to create uh, two new platforms at Manchester Piccadilly Station, which was meant to be the solution to much of the, r- the north of England's railway um, congestion in terms of sort of its existing lines. So that was quite memorable because uh, that press conference from the government's perspective couldn't have gone worse, um, came to sort of announce this this new investment. Um, and and it all obviously became about the, the broken promise uh, of this longstanding plan. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Ethan, what's, what stood out for you in 2023? Well, obviously, I love local politics. So we have the story of the Salford Lib Dem councillor who sort of by accident got elected to Cotswold District Council so he was sitting on two seats so the the um chap in question is called Chris Twells um and I just want to read you a couple of comments if I can so he was named as the candidate um in the Cotswold District Council election in May and effectively his boss councillor Alex Warren who is the leader of the Lib Dems in Salford at the time said his name is on the ballot paper as a paper candidacy because the Lib Dems are struggling to fill the slate he will not win and then I can remember this vividly. So it was about, I was taking over from one of my colleagues who'd done the overnight shift for the election results at about 10 to 6 in the morning, so bleary-eyed. And that was when the result popped through. 
that Chris Twells had won in the Cotswold District Council election. Um, so that was a wonderful morning of uh, genuine shock, I think was the word. Um, because afterwards, Chris Twells, who did not resign his seat, so he's up for election in Salford in May of next year. So he has decided not to... He, his reasoning was, well, I can basically move down to the Cotswolds, sort of do two jobs, and then uh, without costing the taxpayer in Salford any money, I won't have a by-election, so I just won't stand again. This is the thing that really stood out um, to me. He said, nothing I've done is fraudulent and is completely within the law, and the local election monitoring officer has confirmed that. Um, I'm sitting as an independent member while my suspension from the Liberal Democrats is active because he was suspended by the Lib Dems. Um, suspension is a neutral act. It does not mean I've done anything wrong, and I'm hoping that within the next few months the case will be resolved. Um, like many people in this city, I have a job that requires me to move a lot. Uh, move around a lot. So I spend time at two addresses. I have my flight itself with keys. And it's also well known in the chamber where I live. I will still be playing a full part. So he has insisted that despite living, it's about 160 miles apart or spending time 160 miles, that he can do the job in both instances. Um, so yes, I, I think my unofficial hero of the year would have to be Chris Wells. Local politics does throw up some uh, some gems like that, doesn't it? Um, I'll just quickly mention mine, which is uh, actually in... The House of Lords, I feel like can't mention 2023 without mentioning uh, Charlotte Owen, 30 years old, who is the youngest uh, life peer in the House of Lords. She was nominated by Boris Johnson, her old boss, and she is now one of the people who will sit in the House of Lords for the rest of her life and she will help make our legislation. So I guess she'll help shape the uh, Rwanda uh, deportation bill when it comes to the Lords in the new year. But people are wondering... How did she get the job? Because she has seemingly very little political experience of any kind. She she did uh, she was an intern for William Bragg, the MP in Hazel Grove, for a month. She had a spell uh, at George Osborne's Tatton Conservative Association office, and she was a spad for a relatively short period for some government ministers. But yet she has been deemed by Boris Johnson to be worthy of a place amongst our lawmakers. Uh, So I think we'll be keeping a a keen eye out for her contributions next year to see if she can justify uh, her place in in, in Westminster. So uh, yeah, those, well, some good, very diverse memories from 2023. I guess we'll see what 2024 throws up. And uh, Ethan and Joe, thanks thanks so, so much for coming on today. Listeners may not previously have heard of the village of Darsbury near Warrington in Cheshire, perhaps not surprisingly as it's got a population of just a few hundred people. It does though have a major claim to fame as the birthplace of the author Lewis Carroll, who went on to write the classic book Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Just a few hundred metres away from the village though is a facility that is already putting the name Darsbury on the map, at least in science and business circles, as the home of SciTech Darsbury, a pioneering science and innovation campus which boasts dozens of high-tech companies. And the work being done at Darsbury is not so much like one of Lewis Carroll's fantasy novels, but more the stuff of science fiction. Just a few weeks ago, the ribbon was cut on advanced quantum computer research and development site run by SciQuantum in what is the Silicon Valley startup's first search facility outside the US, boasting supercomputers that work hundreds of times faster than the current ones do. 
So, as such, it's now fair to describe the science campus in the Liverpool city region as a hotbed of one of the world's key new technologies. So I want to find out a bit more about what's going on at Daresbury, and I've got two great guests to help me with that. Dr. Catherine Royce is director of the Hartree Centre, high-performance computing, data analytics and artificial intelligence research facility based at Daresbury. And Dr. Peter Waggett is UK director of research at IBM Research Europe, which has a team at Daresbury described as bringing cutting-edge computational science and engineering to define the quantum computing of the future. It's great to have you both on. Good to great see you. Great to be here. Peter, I, I saw an interesting comment recently from George Freeman, the former science minister. He said, we have identified quantum as one of the five transformational technologies in which the UK is a global leader. Quantum is set to transform computing, imaging and sensing, cybersecurity and position, navigation and timing with major industrial applications from drug discovery to defence and fintech. Now, I probably ought to start off by going maybe back to basics just a little. There may be a few listeners who hear the term quantum computing thrown around on the news, don't fully understand what it involves. Could you just break it down in slightly more layman's terms, I guess, what quantum computing actually is, what your team what your team at Daresbury is, is doing? Well, one of the things that um, uh, people don't often understand is that um, quantum computing isn't just the same as doing normal computing quicker or better in, in this sort of like setup. Um, really, what it's about is looking at things in a different way. So we're using the quantum mechanical uh, sort of like attributes of, um, of the systems to enable us to do things such as real world simulations. So as uh, Richard Feynman, who's one of the you know, founding fathers of um, uh, quantum computing, said, I mean, paraphrasing it, but um, basically, um, you know, the real world is quantum based. So, you know, if you're going to simulate it, you better have a computer that works in the same way. Quantum computing can do some things that standard high performance computing will ever be able to do uh, in terms of operations, but uh, it is a supplement to normal computing setup. So, you know, really what we're looking to do is to pull together the different elements of the system such that when you've got a problem, you can break it down into those parts that are relevant to quantum, throw it at that, uh, but those parts that aren't very good uh, with a quantum computer are handled in a conventional way. So it, it's really just broadening the, the type of operations that uh, we can do. I know the aim of quantum computing is to help solve some of the most complex and challenging problems facing society. Could you just perhaps give us an example of uh, a pressing societal problem that maybe quantum computing could could help to uh, to tackle? Well, one of the projects and one of the most exciting projects we've done here at Daresbury um, has been working with AstraZeneca. And what we really did there was um, start to look at, you know, can we do uh, things such as drug discovery quicker, better, faster with um, uh, quantum computing compared to conventional computing? And the first papers have just gone out showing that that is capable, you know, the capability that we've got. Uh, and now we're at the stage where we're actually starting to run some of these simulations for real on uh, quantum computers. So, um, you know, all of the big problems that society is facing, you know, whether it's climate change, whether it's, in you know, drug discovery, um, all of those things, um, there are elements of those that are really well suited to quantum computing. And that's what we're looking to, to bring to it. Now, it's not straightforward, um, but, you know, we are seeing uh, an 
vast improvement in the capability of these quantum computers, such that you know we're seeing this quantum advantage starting to come a lot quicker than everybody had predicted. Now, you've got a base at Daresbury, I think somewhere else in the country uh, as well. I'm interested just to know why you chose Daresbury in Cheshire, as opposed to maybe somewhere in the southeast or maybe one of the big cities like Liverpool or Manchester. What's attractive about this particular location? Well, it's principally um, the work that we're doing with SDFC. So um, SDFC's base here, which, you know, Kate uh, leads up, um, is something that uh, for us is really attractive. I mean, what we've got is a true partnership between public and private sector. And what we're hoping to do is bring together the skills of the two teams and get the best out of both of them. Uh, And, you know, that's really what we've been uh, looking at. So um, the ability to get access to you know, the people that we've got here in terms of SDFC, the ability to work in partnership with them has been a key element. Uh, and now, of course, you know, we're seeing that for um, some of the activities around quantum, the fact that uh, Desbury's got a you know a site that's getting a reputation and getting more people coming into it to work on quantum computing. Absolutely. So just uh, for people who don't know, the STFC is the Science and Technology Facilities Council, um, which is an integral part of uh, the Desbury site. And um, Catherine, you are one of the senior people at the Hartree Centre. Can you just tell us a bit about the work that it does and maybe just give us a sense of how that work impacts on the wider the wider world? Absolutely. So the Hartree Centre was set up 10 years ago. We're part of National Labs, which, as you said, the research council we sit under is this Science Technology Facilities Council, which is a bit of a mouthful. But what Hartree Centre was designed to do is look at emerging technologies coming out of the research academia world and translate that into industry. So how can we solve industrial challenges today with new technologies? And one of those is quantum that we've been talking about, that we work with IBM on here. Some of the applications we've had, um, we've been looking at it in terms of cancer research. So we've been looking at breast cancer, in particular, ductile carcinoma in situ. Um, It's a very difficult one to spot when you're looking at histology. Um, So this is the, the scans of the cells. What quantum is starting to show in proof of concept that we can do is not just work out whether it's cancer or not cancer, but start to be able to subdivide the types of cancer. So as some of your listeners will know, cancer, when somebody has breast cancer, it's not just breast cancer. There's about 12 to 16 different types approximately of of breast cancer. So knowing exactly what type somebody has and being able to personalize their treatment is really, really important. So that's something that we're starting to see that we can do. We've also looked at it around, as we were talking about drug discovery. And one of the things that we looked at together was around if we had quantum during COVID-19, during the first outbreak, could we have picked drugs that would have helped with the treatment of COVID-19 better and more accurately. And that is definitely something that, again, in proof of concept, we've been able to do. So we're not saying that the process is faster. What we're saying is we can take the machine learning part of the workflow out of a classical computer, put it into a quantum computer, run it, put it back into a classical compute, And we are finding that it is picking 
much better the types of molecules, i.e. the types of drugs that are going to work better for the example I'm talking about there with COVID-19. So that's two examples, but I could go on talking for quite a long time on the different things we've been working on. Absolutely. And Peter, let's come back uh, to you. Your team is also looking at the next generation of artificial intelligence, uh, I gather, which obviously is a, a, a topic that is generating a lot of uh, column inches uh, in, in the news. I mean, where do you see the development of AI going in the next few years? And obviously, there's a very live debate, isn't there, about AI and you know the opportunities of it, but also the potential threat to people's jobs, even you know, our, our safety, some people, some people fear. I mean, is it something people should be worried about, do you think? Or, or is it more of an opportunity than a, a threat? Well, it's certainly, you know, we would like to think that it's opportunity. We've uh, been very clear, though, in terms of uh, what we're doing and, you know, how we're developing systems with the um, Hartree and the SDFC team. Um, you know, we're, what we're really looking at is trying to understand how to deploy AI, you know, safely and securely. So, for example, um, you know, we've got a, a new product that we've launched called Watson X. Uh, and one of the key things that that has is that it has a full um, audit and provenance trail around the data used to train um, the AI. So, uh, you know, for example, you know, if we're using a data set, then, you know, we need to know where, where its applicability is, what the sort of like challenges are with it, such that uh, we don't end up with um, uh, any kind of uh, undesirable uh, side effects from from what we're trying to do. So, um, you know, for us, um, you know, AI and uh, is is going to be key. It's going to be key to a whole range of um, different sectors and activities, uh, but it needs to be built on very solid foundations, and those foundations need to cover all of the ethical and audit issues that we need to be able to demonstrate. AI is a tool. It's not a replacement for thought. So AI can augment what you can do. It can speed up what you do, but it is not a replacement. It is it is something to help you manage the huge and vast amounts of data that we have to be using today to make the accelerated scientific discoveries particularly and, and using it in industry. But it it does come with a lot of responsibility and a lot of care. And that's why coming and working with IBM and Hartree in some of the programs that we have that we work together with SMEs to help you use AI appropriately. And I would say that would be my big message. No, I think so. And, you know, I think it, it may be slightly heretical, but... Um... You know, the era of big data, I think, is over. You know, we can't afford to keep churning more and more data for less and less value coming out of it. Um, we need to be very targeted in where we uh, do our data processing. Mm. Uh, and that's really where AI can help us. You know, it can guide us to the right points to do the the detailed calculations that we need, um, rather than just sort of like a brute force and ignorance approach where we're just churning more and more data for less and less uh, results. And let's not forget that we're also generating lots of new jobs with every new technology we've ever had. If you think about the rise of the desktop computer, people's jobs and working lives change. Didn't mean we had less jobs. We just had different jobs. So part of what we do here at the Hartree Centre is looking at mid-careers and reskilling people in their mid-careers around how to use the new technologies coming up so that we have a workforce that can take advantage of all these new jobs that are coming up. 
You mentioned jobs, and I wanted to sort of focus a little bit on the uh, the sort of economic and employment um, implications of what you're doing in Daresbury. One of the things we've got often talk about on this podcast is sort of the issue of skills in particular parts of the north of England. So I'm kind of interested to know the people who work at SciTech Daresbury and at the Hartree Centre and for IBM. Do they do they come from all across the country to work uh, in this little corner of Cheshire with you guys, or are you able to find sufficiently skilled people in the northwest of England to do the jobs that you you need to do? I think that's a fascinating question. So. Actually, most of them come from all over the country, sometimes all over the world. But the reason I'm really interested in in your question on the other part, do they come from the local area, is that we're currently working with the Liverpool Combined Region through the working with the universities. We've got some great degree courses up up in this region, as well as a bit further afield. enticing that group of people to stay within the local region to really sort of you know generate this fantastic ecosystem we want to be here for everybody's careers life from their initial education all the way through apprenticeships all the way through to becoming actually working and developing their careers um so that's something we're very very passionate about here yeah and you know we've got really good partnerships with manchester and liverpool universities in terms of um uh, you know making sure that we can bring people into the the work environment we've got we we run you know intern programs we run um you know we have a uh, sponsored studentship uh, type of setup, all of which is intent on you know bringing together the you know the skills we need into this sort of area. So um, yeah, it's a it's a rich area for us, uh, particularly around um, you know some of the skills that we're trying to get. Uh, but the attraction of the site is such that you know we are getting people coming in from worldwide uh, who want to work here. And I know that in the last few days, SciTech uh, Daresby, I think, has been given the go ahead by the local council in uh, Holton to expand by another 80,000 square feet uh, of real estate. So it seems like local leaders, local authority are very much behind the scheme. But I- I'm interested to know, is there anything more that you think you could be getting in terms of support from sort of political leaders, uh, either at la- local or national level? Could they be helping you at all uh, in any way that you're not being helped at the moment? I think the key way is um, shouting about what we're doing here at Darsbury. We are the National Lab of the North. We are very proud of what we're doing. We talked today about what we do in quantum. However, there's a huge amount going on here with accelerator technology. So that's like CERN and the Hadron Collider. People here are developing the next accelerators, the next future. We have one of the largest cryogenic labs, which is why we've had Quantum come here. So really shout about and be proud of what we have here in the North. Absolutely. And just looking forward in sort of 10, 15 years, I mean, how do you see the the Hartree Centre and uh, SciTech Diaspora more widely? How do you see it developing? My aspiration is to see SciTech Darsbury as one of the centres for quantum and AI technologies going forward. We we have huge potential to really push out those technologies into industry and help lead the way for industrial applications of AI and quantum going forward. And I'd like to see this region really leading that and taking that forward. 
Dr. Catherine Royce uh, from the Hartree Centre, Dr. Peter Waggett from IBM Research Europe. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and it's produced by Daniel J. McCoughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Also, check out the other laudable podcasts. See you next week. Bye-bye.